1982, the world was introduced to Neil, Rick, Vivian and Mike, the four students from Scumbag College in The Young Ones. And although it only ran for 12 episodes, its anarchic, offbeat humour helped bring alternative comedy to the mainstream and made it an icon of British popular culture. I'm Genevieve and my guest today starred as the long-suffering, lentil-loving hippie Neil in the show, so here to talk about his life after that thing he did and stick around at the end for a special competition, please welcome Nigel Planer. Hello, Nigel. Lovely speaking with you today. Hello, Genevieve. Or Dr. Nigel, I should call you. Yeah. Because you were awarded an honorary Doctorate of Arts from Edinburgh Napier University in 2011. That's right. I had quite an association going with them over Robert Louis Stevenson and got to know a few of them. And then they offered me a an honorary doctorate. My dad was very, very chuffed. And it must have been something you never imagined getting because although you went to university, African and Asian studies, I think it was, you left partway through your course. Yes, I dropped out. I dropped out of uh, uni and I dropped out of drama school as well. I got quite good at dropping out. And so my dad particularly was chuffed, as I say, because he thought I would never have a even a diploma in anything. And so he he came all the way up to Edinburgh and was sitting there. It was a it was a big day really for him. I've asked this to a previous guest who was also awarded an honorary doctorate. But do you ever use your doctor title, or have you ever used it just for shits and giggles? No, I haven't. It's uh, it's a bit embarrassing because, of course, uh, my dad included, but people I know have have doctorates uh, that they've worked five years to achieve. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a little embarrassing to swan around calling yourself Dr. Planer when it's an honorary one. Although it didn't just come out of the blue, as I say. I'd written a play about Robert Louis Stevenson, in which Robert Louis Stevenson featured. And part of the research and also part of trying to raise money and get the, get the play on, I made contact with a professor, uh, uh, Professor Linda Dryden at Edinburgh Napier University, and we shared an interest in Stevenson. And we started something called Robert Louis Stevenson Day uh, with Ian Rankin, who's a big Edinburgh, you know, guy. And we, on his birthday, November the 13th, I think they still do it now, but we, we felt that Edinburgh doesn't celebrate Robert Louis Stevenson enough. Um, I tried to get them to change... It, this was more of a joke than anything else, to change the airport name to Robert Louis Stevenson Airport, because the, <laughs> the joke being that he spent his entire life trying to get away from Edinburgh and ended up dying in the South Seas in Tahiti. But um, it wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to rename the airport. But it created a bit of a stir, everybody saying, how dare you? And we used to have readings. We had lots of guest people who were associated with Robert Louis Stevenson. It was, it was an exciting thing to do. And so uh, my connection with Edinburgh wasn't entirely uh, uh, like, oh, let's give him a doctorate. You know, it was, there was a connection anyway. So I don't, I don't feel too embarrassed. Yeah. Not, not as much as somebody who's actually done a proper PhD. Anyway, it was, it was nice. And the person, as well as my dad, who was impressed was my son at the time. Because he was, when was it, 2011? He, he would have been about eight. And um, he thought it was just great. He was calling me doctor all over the place. But it's the novelty soon wore off, you know. Okay, Dr. Planer, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Right. Of course, we all know and love you for your role as Neil in the cult comedy The Young Ones, starring opposite the brilliant Rick Mayall, Adrian Edmondson and Christopher Ryan as four very different students who share a house and probably put every landlord off letting to students for years after. But it was a character that you'd created and had actually been playing for about three or four years prior to that, wasn't it? That's right. I uh, created it with Peter Richardson, who was my double act partner at the comic strip and went on to be the producer-director of the Comic Strip Presents, the sort of rival TV series that started at the same time as The Young Ones. Of course, myself, Adrian and Rick were in both rival programmes, so we were our own worst enemies, I suppose. And 
we wrote a show, myself and Peter, called Rank, which was a rock theatre show with a band. And one of the characters in it, we played about 30 characters between us. One of the characters in it was Neil. And Neil kind of stuck after the show and became, because he was a performing directly to the audience. The other characters were talking to each other. So he became my act, as it were, something that I could take out like a party piece, but also when the comedy store and the comic strip started, he became my my stand-up, as it were, my stand-up character. The comedy of the show was so offbeat and surreal. I mean, watching it back now, when you see the puppets and the singing mouldy tomato and the roller skating carrots, you kind of think, what were they on when they wrote this? Did you ever think, especially while making it and before it aired, whether people were going to get it or how it was going to be received? No, didn't really think about those kind of things at all. <laughs> we we were just doing our thing, you know. We were a gang. We'd done the comedy store. We'd done the comic strip. We'd been on tour around England. We'd been on tour around Australia. We were all getting spots on television in various different shows, and this was a way we could could all finally get onto television. So it was maybe when I say finally, it was only three years. It was a bit of an explosion. And there wasn't really time to stop and think, oh, what is the sort of cultural effect of what we're doing and how will this be received? I mean, since then, as Adrian keeps saying, you know, there's been probably more time spent talking about it in the last 40 years than there was actually making it. Uh, Yeah, I heard him say, um, what was it, Uh, 14 weeks work, (laughs) 40 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, 14 weeks work and 40 years talk. Um, I think it's slightly disingenuous to say it was only 14 uh, weeks' work because, of course, we had the years building up to that. There was him and Rick likewise building up their characters, making their acts, which then got fed into the, the series. But, yeah, it's a, it's an awful lot. It, it, it often asked questions of what we consider and was it deliberate, the cultural impact. But, of course, we were just doing what we do, which is write and perform funny stuff. Mm. The show was so violently slapstick, lots of fire, explosions, falling through ceilings, being hit on the head with a frying pan. Uh, And I'm guessing the standard BBC risk assessment didn't exist in those days. Um, And most of the skits on the show probably wouldn't get past health and safety today. It just can't have been invented uh, 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 then with the the stuff that got done. The falling through the ceiling particularly, I remember as being very dangerous. You know, the two of them were in a in a bed on a fake floor that fell from many feet up and landed bang on the ground. It was just released and they were, and it gave them more of a jolt than they were expecting. There were, I mean, there were very many close shaves. And it was all filmed in front of a live audience too. Like, I can't right. imagine yeah. what would have happened if something had gone wrong. <laughs> well, we did have a stunt day beforehand, so we had an extra day's recording which meant that some of the more complicated stunts could be recorded in advance and played in to the live audience on the day. So you could run up the stairs in front of the live audience and then the bit where you've collapsed or set fire might have been recorded the previous day. But Paul Jackson, the producer, tried to do, keep as many of it live. The falling in the bed was live. You know, m- most as much as possible was live, yeah, to get the shock value out of it. And you famously got injured by the giant chocolate eclair in the classic University Challenge episode. Yes. <laughs> For anyone that needs yes. a reminder of the scene, tell us what happened. Um, well, I'm taller than the other guys, so we're in a row. And there's a the culmination of the scene is meant to be this eclair falls on our head. And it was made of sponge. It was as high as a table and a half and as long as two double beds. A big eclair. So it was big. A big eclair <laughs> made of sponge. You can see it in the shot that it lands on my neck because I'm taller than the other guys. But it was also let off early in rehearsals by mistake with no warning, so we couldn't even... And that landed full whack on my head. It was just difficult talking to the osteopath afterwards. Went to the osteopath. He said, what seems to have, you know, what's happened to you? I said, well, a giant eclair fell on my head, which... (laughs) Which was, um, yeah. You don't hear every day. He he'd never heard that no, before. <laughs> it's such an icon of eighties British popular culture now that it's hard to believe that there were only two series and twelve episodes ever made. Yeah. Um, although there are lots of great series that have few episodes. Faulty Towers. Faulty the Towers. Office. Famously, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
flea bag. Yeah. yeah. But it did make a big impression across the pond where it was the first non-music program on MTV in That's US right. in yeah. 1985. Yeah. Yeah. And you even signed up to be in a US version of The Young Ones, didn't you? Yeah, it was called Oh No, Not Then. Of course, very different. In the States, you have to sign a five-year option in case it goes to series. So you can't suddenly, if it's successful, renegotiate your terms. You're in for five years, which was a very scary prospect. Mm. I didn't know if I was going to like it, you know, but I thought I'm really not going to like it if they do make a successful series of it in America. And I'm not Neil. That would be ridiculous. So I signed it, but it it never took off. It, 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 uh, It only went to pilot, which I suppose I was quite thankful for really would would have been a bit of a wrench i think and the american and english approach to comedy is very different and they both got their qualities as you can see with the format transfer of the office which is very successful i think but they changed some of the the english like all that nasty characters and they take the edge off that in order to make be able to make 52 episodes you know which is what they're after mm. And and I think the Oh No Not Them program fell between two stools. The guy was such a fan of British comedy that he tried to be as outrageous and British as he could. But on the other hand, the Americans, you know, he didn't use the best side of what American comedy would have done. And he didn't use, he wasn't allowed to be outrageous enough in America. So it kind of fell between two stools. He was a great guy called Dave Merkin. And he uh, went on to write and produce The Simpsons. Oh. I was going to say unfortunate surname. Yes, it is. He, I mean, <laughs> Dave Merkin, exactly. I mean, he was a comedy writer, so it is possible that he chose that name. I don't know, you know. <laughs> Let's talk music because you had a few musical triumphs as Neil. Notably, you had a number two hit in 1984 with Hole in My Shoe, which also won you a Brit Award for Best Comedy Song. Yeah. And you also released the Neil's Heavy Concept album shortly after. But you were involved in one of the biggest musical events of 1984, which was Band-Aid. Oh, yeah. And although you're not singing on Do They Know It's Christmas, you do appear in the making of video. That's right. Where you do a bit of a skit with status quo. And I know that when Bob Geldof gives you a call, you don't say no. But how did that all come about? Uh, Well, exactly that. He gave us a call. He said, why don't you come along? And... He he said, "Why doesn't Neil come along?" Is what he meant is, you know, don't. I, at the time, I'm I was very much in disguise. I very much believed in that as my method. Mm. I thought if I go along as me, nobody's gonna. Nobody wants me. They want the comedy character, and it seemed inappropriate. If I'd got there on time, I could have kind of arrived fashionably just as they were finishing that singing recording. So they were still in the studio, just finishing that up. I felt that it might be inappropriate. This is before Comic Relief. Uh, it might be inappropriate to have a comedy character who's a bit of a an idiot singing about what we should be doing about real starving people. It seemed like a bit of a disconnect. Uh, the other people are pop stars. They can say what their hand on heart where they stand. But if I... As a comedy character said, hand on heart, I thought it might be, you know, might be counterproductive. So I turned up because exactly, you can't turn Geldof down and messed about instead (laughs) with status quo. I met Paul Weller. It was an amazing day. I went in the studio just as they were finishing the singing. I thought, you know, it was a it was an amazing day. Great to be part of it. Yeah, it was. It was it was it was great. I'm kind of I think I made the right decision because it. It's a satirical comedy character. You can't stand up there. And you can, there's a big clash between music and comedy, really. If you're very funny, the music suffers. And if the music's brilliant, the comedy suffers. And there's a, it's a fine balance. Uh, and then you got your first number one single in 1986 when the Young Ones teamed up with Cliff Richard for Comic Relief and you recorded Living Doll. And I think that was my first exposure to the young ones. I was six at the time and I loved it. Oh, dear. And I didn't realise it was an actual song because who would write a lyric saying they're going to lock a woman up in a trunk? I thought that was just Vivian. I know. It's disgraceful, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Going to lock her up in a trunk so no big hunk can steal her away from me. Like stalker. And then Neil's response to that is to say, I feel sorry for the elephant. 
uh, <laughs> he's misunderstood the meaning of the word trunk. Uh, but in um in Cliff Richard's book recently, he said that he wasn't keen on doing it because he didn't like the humour of the young ones. Horrific was what he called it. Oh, I haven't read his book. And uh, and also because he said he'd spent thirty years building an image and he didn't want to tear it down with this <laughs> one song, so didn't want it to be too crude. Uh, did you have any plans that didn't get past the Cliff test? And what were your memories of making it? How do you mean didn't get past the cliff test? Where Cliff was like, no, I'm not doing that. Too rude. No, actually. We spent a very short time with him. He came in, he sang it. Uh, we'd already in the series had a, you know, there was a lot about Cliff in the series with, with the character Rick. Yeah. Thinking Cliff was the great revolutionary singer. Um, so we'd already taken the piss quite a lot out of Cliff. So we were a bit worried about him turning up and um but then the moment you're in the studio he goes into the booth you're behind the glass you know by the desk he puts his hand to his ear and starts singing and you hear that like honey tone of his voice that tone and everybody went oh blimey it's cliff and it's this tone of this voice everybody went oh that's why he's a big pop star of course he can sing and it, you forget that you know a singer like that will have He's got the he's got the chops on him, you know. The the voice was was so lovely that we all it sort of stopped us all in our tracks. I was too young at the time, but I never knew that there was a young ones video game that was for the Commodore sixty four and Spectrum. Uh, did you ever play it? Uh, well, that's the first I've ever heard of that. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I certainly never got any money from it. I wonder who did. <laughs> Well, so this is this is what the internet tells me, but I don't know if it's true, but I read that there was uh, a bug in the game which meant that it was impossible to actually finish it, which I think is, is brilliant if it's true. The plot was that you're all being evicted and you've got to go around your house and try and collect all your bits to, to leave, but they've all been put in different rooms. But I love that. Uh, so apparently you could buy it from independent computer stores, but it was also mainly sold in Boots. This is ridiculous, isn't it? For non-UK listeners, Boots is a pharmacy, so it, you could buy some indigestion relief and a Young Ones game at the same time. But apparently the, yeah. the company that made the game uh, went bankrupt and out of business, so they could never fix the game from the bug, and um, about 10,000 10, copies were sold, apparently, according to the internet. That's all. Everything you've just said is complete news to me. <laughs> I've seen still frames of the game. So unless someone has gone to the very elaborate task of creating an 8-bit version of The Young Ones. Yeah, no, I can believe it. I believe it. Uh, I, I feel like it's true. I'm not saying, I bet it's true. It's, <laughs> there are many things. that were T-shirts. There were all sorts of crocheted things and artworks and God knows what. There's nothing, you know, it's very... Um, very strange. I feel very disjointed from that because, as I say, not only have I not made any money from any of that, but it feels, you know, it's nothing, it's, it's sort of public property and doesn't seem to have anything to do with me. Oh, that's a shame. I feel like I don't want to leave the nostalgia zone on such a on such an unhappy note. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's move on. And... Okay, well, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone then and enter what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Great. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time here welcome you have five whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed and please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latted zone So this is one of those occasions where your career after that thing you did is so massive and you've done so much across different platforms and genres and mediums. So apologies that I'm going to be cherry picking and whizzing through here as we have limited time. But after The Young Ones ended, I think it's fair to say that Neil continued to follow you around for a while, a bit to your detriment. I know that you were in another show at the same time, Shine on Harvey Moon, which had an audience of kind of more than 10 million, but people would only recognise you as Neil for a show that only had about a million people watching. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That must have been an awful 
conflicting feeling where on the one hand you've created a character so great people love it and it's in the public consciousness but on the other hand you're thinking okay I'm more than this let me move on to other things um yeah it's not it's not that much of a conflict because it, it you know as an actor you're hired you see the script how am I going to interpret this some writer's written it with an alter ego uh, like Neil, when you've created a character like Neil or like Nicholas Craig, is another a character I then went on to create, the actor. You've made books as the character. You've done, you've, yes, I was in Young Ones with, with Neil, but I made a book, I made an album, I did a live show. I could do, and I did many radio interviews in character, not as Nigel coming along to describe, you know, entirely in character. And with Nicholas Craig, likewise. So it's a, you have a different ownership of it. You have a different feeling of it. And it's it's kind of your baby. And, and then it's grown up. Neil's grown up. You feel, oh, well, he's a teenager now. Oh, I've got to say goodbye to him now because he's he's adult now. He can manage on his own sort of thing. And so you, I moved on and created another character. Whereas acting is a job. You, you get hired. You you get deeply into the character, sure, but you're learning lines. It would be harder, I find, to improvise from Shine and Harvey Moon. I, could, I couldn't get very far because it's written by uh, uh, Marks and Gran. It's a you're kind of dropped in. It's more. It's it's a different experience. You then turn to theatre, uh, where as well as the traditional thespian treading the board stuff, you also had a long stint in musicals. Mm. You were part of the original West End cast for Chicago, We Will Rock You, and Wicked opposite Adina Menzel. You were in Hairspray and then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for which you were nominated for an Olivia Award 10 years ago. That nomination must have been great validation that you were seen in the industry as more than just a character actor and that you could stand on your own in the West End. Well, it, it was a character I was playing in Charlie the Chocolate Factory. I was playing Grandpa Joe, um, so it was it was a validation that I'm a character actor. It was good, and I, I was very shocked and surprised because there was such a lot of dancing in it. And um, luckily, I was playing Grandpa Joe, who's sort of old and and quite stiff, and so I got away with the dancing. But uh, the dancing's quite problematical for me, um, but I got away with it. So. Yeah, it was lovely. In fact, my first proper full equity job was in 1978, was in the original company of Evita. It was, yeah, David Essex's understudy. You know, so I knew my way around a musical because you're in the, I was in the chorus as well, dancing, singing, and the, the idea that you cover, there are always covers in musicals. It's lovely. I, I love the whole sort of group effort of it. Somebody steps in to play a part, someone else is off. You know, it's a massive group of people all working towards this one end to produce the show. And so when I got back into Chicago, I felt I, I did feel kind of at home. Yeah. You've also written for the stage too. Yeah. Um, about half a dozen plays, I think you're up to now. But the most recent, it's headed straight towards us currently on at the Park Theatre in London. Yeah. For one more week only. Um, but you also wrote and narrated some hundred-odd episodes of The Magic Roundabout when it was revived on Channel 4 in 1992. That's right. And I know when Eric Thompson did the originals in the 60s and 70s, he would just watch the French animation uh, with the sound off and just make up his own stories. Is that what you did too? Yes. Uh, we got the French scripts and we got them translated and we saw the French with the sound up. And it's nothing like the Magic Roundabout. That all of the it's played by different actors. They've got different names. Dougal talks like you know, very very fast. Dylan, the the stoned rabbit, um, again talks fast and upbeat. It's a completely different series, and so the, there was no way I couldn't follow in the. I was following in the footsteps of Eric Thompson, who created those wonderful characters and those voices and I tried to do as much honour and homage to what he'd created as I possibly could. Um, I did it with my younger brother as well, Roger. He he was a comedy writer at the time and we decided not to go back and listen to the originals but to do it more like we remembered it from our own childhood because I felt that would be in, in a funny way, that would be truer to people's memories 
than to actually do it how he'd, he'd actually done it. Because it is quite different when you remember things from many years ago, especially from your childhood. They're not necessarily how you think they were. So we did it more from our own memories. But I did do the deadpan voice, you know, oh dear, said Florence. Things have all gone very symbiotic, she said. You know, <laughs> it was really good fun. Were you consciously trying to write for a children's audience or for a universal audience where, where the adults could at least enjoy it with the double entendres and stuff that Eric Thompson used to do? Yeah, that's great that you use the word universal audience, a uni audience, uni age. There's a problem with the whole genre uh, thing that I have. I've got it at the moment. With I've got a book out called Jeremiah Born in Time. Which we shall talk about in a moment. Oh, good. Uh, it, <laughs> but it's a it's a comedy book. It's a science fiction book. And the problem is booksellers, publishers, they all want to know, is this 8 to 14-year-olds? Mm. What age group is this for? And Terry Pratchett, who I'm a, a big fan of, I did a lot of his audio books, used to say it's for, it's for uni age. And I like to think he didn't mean university age. He meant universal. Universal age. There's a whole... It, 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 no, I'm going to say there's a whole non-genre, really. It's like Terry Pratchett fits into it. Douglas Adams fits into it. Magic Roundabout certainly fits into it. Adrian Mole, to some extent, fits into it. That's got a 13-year-old boy as the hero, but it doesn't mean it's only for kids, only for 11-year-old boys to listen to. And yet somehow we don't have a genre for it. Magic Roundabout is comedy. Kids can enjoy it. There's a lot of stuff. It's not just double entendres. I mean, I just used the word symbiotic, said Florence. No kid knows what, most people don't know what that means. But that's not the point. It's to have intelligent comedy, that comedy that's not just stupid, you know, that's stuff in it. And uh, Terry Pratchett, great hero in, in that sense, in that he's writing fantasy books, he's writing comedy books, but there's stuff in them. You know, there's you're going to find stuff in there. And likewise, I hope to some extent, in Magic Roundabout. Speaking of children, you wrote a parenting book, also in 1992, called A Good Enough Dad, yeah. about the experience of having your first son, Stanley. And I don't have children, but mm. reading the book and your experience confirmed my choice not to have kids was the right one. Um, uh, oh, dear. <laughs> That's terrible. It reminded me of an old colleague of mine who had two grown-up daughters, and she said to me, I don't regret having children, but I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, there is quite a lot of the stuff in that book about how hard work it is, really, isn't there? There's a lot in there. Yeah. The thing that was exciting about that book, uh, I was talking to somebody about it just the other day, to Henry Normal, who I'm on tour with at the moment, because he's written a, a, a book with his wife about his son. So we were talking about this. I said that. The thing is, 1992, uh, somebody came and said, do you want to write a book about, you know, you've just had a, a, a kid. So I looked around to see what else was in on the market, books for males, for dads, not, for, not motherhood books, not how to parent, which is usually the mother, or how to be an assistant parent, because in those days the idea was that a dad was basically a second division person who would have to basically not have a direct relationship with their child it's all through the mother and there was nothing i'm not kidding you there was there were no books on the market about dads and, and kids so i got quite excited by that i thought this is, the, this is the first time that i can find that there's a dad book out so i did quite a lot of uh, research as well it's not just my own experiences i, I interviewed a lot of people for instance, there's a chapter about whether to attend the birth or not. But the, what was the first thought? And I asked a load of guys, what was your first thought? Because my first thought was, oh, there you are. Like, like a sort of reincarnation thing almost. Like, oh, that's, I knew you. I already know you. Hmm. Which was a very strange experience. But, I mean, it's a, it's a comedy book. It's, it's funny. It's meant to be funny. Not, can't be that funny if it put you off having children. <laughs> 
know what well, I mean you do say um you know I'll explain to, to listeners that it's also punctuated by letters that you've written to your son Stanley that you hope he will read at the point in which he becomes a father himself yeah. and you say in one of these first letters the less you know about it the better because no one would ever do it no one ever become a parent and have children nobody in their right mind would ever go through this yeah. yes and after reading your book I was like this is why I don't have children yeah <laughs> And I used to think, my God, my my parents, I forgive them for everything. They did this three times. And what about those people with, you know, 11 kids? I know a guy who's got 10 brothers and sisters, you know. Wow. Yeah, incredible, incredible. For uh, a number of years, you were a patron of Families Need Fathers, Mm. the charity Mm. that supports parents going through a divorce or separation after your own experience in that situation. Would you mind sharing why campaigning about that became an important issue for you? Yeah, it was. I felt I could have something to offer. My situation um, was uncomfortable. It wasn't that bad that some, you know, you hear terrible stories in those days. But I felt I could have something to offer. I was helping people with divorces and helping them to remember that the needs of the child come first because the divorce, people go crazy and start uh, fighting. It's like a, a war, can be like a war. So I joined it. A friend of mine was also there. Somebody had just taken his child away into another jurisdiction. Um, I had, I had, did have some problems. The problems I had were more with the way the law was set up. And so the campaign was to try and get that changed, which was successful. The second time I've had a second divorce and a second son and the, um, the actual process of going through the law, I was amazed. It was only 10 years later and the process was so much smoother and better. You have a financial resolution meeting, which you have to have within six weeks. You have to see a lawyer of some sort to talk about where the money is so that you can sort out who's going. You know, it's much more organized and it's much fairer. But back in the, in the, in the old days, people could drag it on forever. People could, people could just, you know, say, well, I don't fancy doing that. I, I, I want this. I want that. And meanwhile, the children are growing up when you still haven't got a child resolution order to say who's going to see the child when. And some of these cases of people I met were going on six years, seven years. And you think, well, so by the time you've sorted out what the legal teams can catch up and they're all making a load of money out of it, of course, because the lawyers are winning at at, at every corner, the child's now grown up. So forget it. Why bother? The child's now an adult. So I I did feel quite strongly about it. we, we also made an allegiance with the Grandparents Alliance because, of course, in those situations, the poor child loses a whole a whole set of grandparents as well. Yeah. The whole family is gone if, if it's a bad separation in that way and there isn't a good uh, child contact resolution. And I saw it more as a, a children's rights charity rather than a father's rights. And then there was, as with any charity, there was a lot of people arguing inside the group and then this other group started up who are the Batman guys. Um, Fathers for Justice. Fathers for Justice, that lot. And it was around that time that I kind of moved on. It was timing, but also feeling that I felt that talking about those issues, people would then make assumptions uh, about me, that I was some kind of uh, what they used to call masculist, you know, some kind of uh, chip on shoulder, uh, right wing male rights person you know nowadays we see it all the time don't we that what aboutery mm. you know that what aboutery over you know why can't we have men's special places for men you know anything that women man- any rights women manage to achieve you've got what aboutery males saying not to name anybody in particular but you know who i mean saying what what about men's rights and all that and, and it, it turned into a really annoying less of a children's rights issue that then again this identity clash that we keep getting bogged down in and um luckily by then my own personal situation was different anyway so i kind of i moved on but for a while i was i was quite active in it and i do feel quite good because i i feel the law did change we did 
it did make a difference. So happily, you are with your wife, Roberta, now. Yeah. Um, and I think it's such a lovely story of how you got together because you first met in your 20s when she was your landlady. That's right. And then you came back together years later. Obviously, it was meant to be. Yes. Yes, that's how I feel about it. I've just been on a tour reading my, I've got a poetry book out, first collection of poetry that goes back over 50 years, all the poems I've written over the last 50 years. And there's loads of Roberta poems in there. So it's been rather nice. Uh, read them out to, to people in public all over the country. And yeah, we're, we're one large extended family now. Just on the poems then, since you, since you mention it, um, you do have a new book, which we will talk about momentarily. But if that new novel wasn't enough, you have just released a collection of poetry as well. Mm. Like a poetic memoir, if you like, over 50 years, as you say, um, that starts with your most recently written poems and then ends with the stuff you wrote when you were 17. That's but right. I love a couple of the haikus that you wrote last year, if you wouldn't mind sharing, about, about getting old and uh, about 2022. Yeah, they're all they're more more succinct as you get older, less less sort of big self pitying rants. And a haiku is a, for anyone who doesn't know it's a it's a, a Japanese form, very old historical form. But in in English translation, you need five syllables followed by seven syllables followed by five syllables. So you could say excitements and smells. That's five syllables. Sudden joys at fresh insights. That's seven syllables. Diminish with age. That's five syllables. So that's a haiku. So the couple here. Obituaries now more frequently concern contemporaries, which is true about getting old. These are ones uh, written in 22 about getting old. Always worrying about cancer and pensions. We move on with joy. Perfect. Which sort of sums up how you have to behave as you get older, yeah. I like your one about, uh, was it 2022? was a bit shit. I can't remember. Oh, oh, bit of a shit year, fucking 2022, but Cyclamen thrives, <laughs> which is a true Japanese one to try and mention nature in the last five syllables. Uh, yeah, I enjoy writing. The, it's not all, I have to hasten to add, they're not all haikus. Just the, yeah, just the latest ones. Just these latest ones. Okay, let's talk about your latest novel, Jeremiah Born in Time, which is the first instalment in your Time Shard Chronicles fantasy trilogy and your first novel in 20 years and tells the story of 17-year-old Jeremiah Born who discovers he has the power to travel through time and finds himself in his house but back in Edwardian London. And it's a very clever but also complex story that runs through three time periods, 1910, present day and 200 years in the future. And the future time period is probably the one that would strike fear in most people's hearts, as in your imagined future, there has been a digital meltdown and we've lost all our data. That's right. Uh, I, I tried to write a, a sort of sci-fi future and realised it was all getting very cliched. And then I thought, well, what actually worries me about the future? Imagine if um, all the information's there, all our data's out there swimming around in, you know, in the cloud like a balloon, like a helium balloon, filled with data. And then one day, imagine if the string was cut, or like a little child, you just let go of the string, and off floats all of our data. Imagine the entire database of the human race in this cloud, isn't it? And we depend on it more and more and more, don't we? To do everything, you can't even buy a beer. If you, you, know, you go into a bar, you get out your mobile device, security settings, ID verifications, login, allow use of location, decline cookies, no, I do not want to subscribe, <laughs> credit check, targeted advertising, system updates, portal passwords, menu choices, until you get to that final thing that says, what would you like? Yes, one pint of beer, please. Click. So I imagined what would happen if that just got overloaded and we lost the lot people who could remember how to do things would suddenly become quite important, wouldn't they? Mm. I used to be able to remember uh, ooh, four phone numbers, five phone numbers, my passport number, bank account numbers. National insurance number. Oh, yeah, national insurance number. All of that stuff. You just would think, well, of course I know all that. But you ask me, what's your son's mobile number? 
Absolutely no idea. Because I just go, click. You just put it on your phone and the phone does it. I just rely on these uh, uh, moguls, you know, who own everything we do. So a future without that might look very different. So people who can make things with their hands might become very important. And people who can remember stuff can become very important. And that's the key. Memory is the key to the time travel in my, because I don't know if you saw, did you see that video about the beaver? who'd been brought up away from other beavers, never seen a river, never seen a forest, brought up in a flat. And the first thing it does when it walks is build a dam in the flat. How does it know how to do that? It's inherited its memory. In nature. In, in nature. And I think we're like that. We, I was imagining a future time when we could somehow tap into our inherited collective memories and remember ourselves back. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's again, it's a comedy book. It's funny. It's, it's inspired by Terry Pratchett again, whose audio books I read and enjoyed playing all those different character voices. So I've crammed in as many character voices as I can, and I've also crammed in as many pedantic and pointless footnotes as I can. <laughs> I noticed. Yes. <laughs> Just I noticed they also tail off towards like the middle of the book, like an editor said, enough of these, stop doing it. <laughs> yeah, I have a little sort of relationship with the editor because I get one editor fired. These are imagined editors, you know, but I get, and, and then I feel bad about it and invite another editor back. And everything. But the, yeah, there's a whole little subplot going on in the- In footnotes. In, in the footnotes, <laughs> yes, which is quite funny. It is very Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams in feel and tone. And of course, both authors had their books made into TV series and films. Mm. And I can totally see Jeremiah Bourne on screen. It's like one of those Christmas adaptations. You know, they put them on at Christmas time type things. Yeah. Um, but when you were writing it, were you conscious of its potential for the screen? And so you have written it in a way where you could, where you basically are your picturing scenes for an adaptation for how it would work. No, not really. I mean, I did, I did, a, I acted in two of the Terry Pratchett films, which were the original ones, Hogfather and uh, Colour of Magic, done by Vadim Jean, who was a friend of mine, who I actually introduced to Terry Pratchett books um, and said, these are make good, these make good telly. He's a film director. Um, no, in answer to your question, no, I just try and make the most exciting story because there's quite a lot of story in it. There's, as well as the characters, there's quite the, I mean, when they asked me what genre it, is it, I said, well, it's a sort of, it's difficult. I'm not very good at genres. It's historical, sci-fi, fantasy, romance, mystery, time travel, comedy, futuristic adventure romp. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There's enough, there's enough sort of science in it as well there's a there's a it is very scientific yeah yeah it's a, a history of science always interests me there's a lot of um a lot about eugenics in it baddies are eugenicists and the people from the future are trying to get that data back to the future because they've lost all their days so the people in the future are, are visiting us trying to retrieve the data that that was lost and um they're going right through history, trying to retrieve the data that was lost. And of course, not all of that data that was lost is the kind of data we would like them to have. For instance, eugenic science, not, not a very healthy pursuit. Mm. I'm really interested in how this book was published because it's not done via the usual route. It's published by Unbound, which is a crowdfunded publisher. And I'd never heard of it before now, but it's such a brilliant idea because as an author, you get an idea published that traditional publishers may not want to take a risk on. And as a reader, you can support an author you love get your name printed in the back of the book and uh, and get some other goodies as well as a reward for yeah, pledging yeah. your support. Why did you choose that route? Um, you not just get your name in the book, but if you if you were fast enough on the pledges, three of the people actually got their names into the body of the story as characters in the story. Oh. That's a good pledge. That was fun doing that. I made them all really obnoxious characters, obviously. <laughs> I got into that because it is, as you say, it's difficult to get publishers interested in anything that's not the obvious thing that's going to come from you. So 
they say, well, if if this is you've got a 17 year old hero, then surely it's got to be an 11 to 21 year old audience. So it's got to, you're talking young adult fiction. So they've immediately categorized you. And as I was saying earlier about the uni age, is this category is is a very popular. It's the kind of thing most people would like to read. I was talking to a librarian the other day. He said the trouble is at 12. All comedy books or anything sort of fun or exciting to read drops away for 12-year-olds and that everything's got to be issues. Mm. It's got to be about gender, race. It's going to have to be because suddenly they're 12 and they've got to be told what to think and they're, they're not going to be reading anymore for enjoyment, fun comedy like an adult would, adventure. It doesn't mean it has to be stupid. It can still have intelligent content. I mean, I personally think Terry Pratchett is educational. If you were interested in ancient Greek philosophy, for instance, you read Small Gods, you'd know more about it than from some historical book, which might get a bit stodgy and boring. Whereas the Terry Pratchett book, you're good on Greek gods and what Greek philosophers and what they thought. Sorry, but you asked me about the publisher, and I went withering on about Terry Pratchett again. Yeah, he was the first. He's he's called um, John Mitchinson. He's the guy who used to write with John Lloyd. He used to write and created the show QI on telly. Oh, yeah. So I thought he might be a good person who's going to like this anyway because there's so much, as I said, pointless detail in it. So many, so many sort of quite interesting facts. I thought this might be the guy who's going to actually like this book. So there was that. But he was the first person to set up this kind of crowdfunded publishing. So it's not like self-publishing when you go to Amazon and you just make a book up. And it's not like your normal crowdfunding because it's an old school publisher. It's got old school editors, old school distribution. Every aspect of it is is like a proper, when I say proper, I don't mean to insult anyone, but like a, I think an editor's, Good editors have an awful lot to offer rather than just publishing your first draft. Really go through it with, you know, really do the work. So he's he's got all of that, but he invented this new model, which is the initial capital outlay, let's get people to pledge. And as you say, it'll get readers involved. They can say what they like about the book. and that You set up a relationship directly, the author to the readers. So it's a, it's a terrific uh, model for publishing, and I think a lot of other publishers are now copying it. And the, the, from an author's point of view, because he hasn't had to make the capital outlay, you get a much better percentage uh, as an author because you can be lost in a big publisher. You're on your 8% or whatever your... Gosh, that's so small. I did realise it was that small. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the um, unbound model, if it goes, if it sells, you're on much more. So the whole thing, you feel much more involved as an author. You feel, no, I'm part of this. This whole process of making this book, I haven't just delivered a manuscript and then it's down to a load of other people. This is an ongoing relationship. As I say, I'm going on tour at the moment reading the poems, but half of that uh, poetry show, I'm reading out extracts from Jeremiah Born in Time and in interesting people in the ideas and there's a Q&A afterwards and there's discussion. It's a whole, um, what's the word? You know, it's a conversation carries on around around the publication of a book, which is really engaging. It's really, it's, it, I'm enjoying it. You know, it's good. Let's give a plug to the tour then. Where can people see you? Well, they can see me on, on uh, any of the gigs if they look at the, Henry Normal, I'm going on tour with the with the poetry. They, if they just look online at Henry Normal Poetry Tour, that they'll find out. We've got a few gigs left, but there's one on Saturday week that I'm not doing with Henry at the Autumn Festival of Norfolk in Norwich, actually in the hostry in the cathedrals. I'm looking forward to that interesting venue, and it's not a, a poetry gig. It's a, it's I'll be doing readings of characters and stuff from Jeremiah Bourne in time. And they had a tech uh, hitch, glitch, with the online booking. So we're a bit behind on the ticket sales. So I'm quite keen to 
put word of that one around. It's in a, a couple of weeks' time, Saturday the 28th. That's the uh, Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams-style uh, audience, I would hope, will will enjoy that one. So if you happen to be in Norfolk or the Norwich area or just fancy a day out, get your tickets now. Um, I read in an interview with you from 2018 where you said that you felt like you had never quite made it and described yourself as just a hired hand and still had a way to go to be where you wanted. So five years on, and now with a dozen extra screen credits, six songs, four plays, an arena tour, a Nicholas Craig podcast, a novel and a poetry collection. And that's even with COVID thrown into the mix. Yeah. Are you there now? It's been a busy five years, is all I can say, yes. Yes. Um, 2018, what was going on then? I must have been well pissed off with with something <laughs> uh, to have said on that. I mean, it's possible that it's, um, you know, especially when you're writing, if you're writing books or film scripts or TV scripts, plays, actors don't know the half of rejection. Everyone says, oh, as an actor, you must face rejection all the time. But it's over. You 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 go, you do the audition, they don't want you, you go away, forget it. Uh, as a writer, the rejections get to you because you've just spent two years working on something. It's not just an audition. You just, you know, and you can get very, very down about things if you've been trying to make something happen and it's just not coming. Sounds like, I wonder what I was doing in 2018 to make me say, yes, just, you know, fuck them all. Um, You know, (laughs) had enough that nobody wants me. And then as you just pointed out, all of most, I think all of what you just described was, it's all been the last, in the five, last years. five years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. So I'm just my my nickname used to be Niggle Complainer. So the curse still rings true. I was going to say, have you happily shaken off the Niggle Complainer nickname? Well, obviously not, because you've just brought it up now. <laughs> no, but it? that was from what 2018. <laughs> now it's five years on. Yeah, no, it, I, I think that must have been. I, I bet you, I could go back and look at the diary and see. Oh, that was the year that. The play got turned down. The publishers wouldn't do the book. You know, you you failed to, and you just get so frustrated with it. Nigel, it's been lovely speaking with you today. Um, Thank you. Yes, lovely speaking with you. As I say, there's so much we didn't have time to touch on, but I'll give him a quick shout out. Bad News, The Grimleys, SpongeBob SquarePants, all the Terry Pratchett stuff you've done, Boomers, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Best of luck with Jeremiah Bourne in time. You have done your looking around, haven't you? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much again for the chat. But brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Massive thanks again to Nigel for joining me. He has kindly given me a signed copy of his new book, Jeremiah Born in Time, to give away to one lucky listener. So for a chance to win, just head over to celebritycatchup.com slash win. Sorry to international listeners, but this is only open to UK residents. And if you're listening to this in 2024 or beyond, I'm afraid you've missed the boat. But if you don't win, you can still get a copy at your usual book retailer. It's a great read, so do go and check it out. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, just visit the website where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star rating or review, and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So please do that on your podcast platform of choice. It will totally make my day. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch-Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.